As we continue to uh, celebrate Advent together, uh, we're going to look at a passage from Matthew 3. But before we read that, just a reminder that Advent is this time of season which leads us to Christmas, to the celebration of Jesus' birth. Advent means coming or arriving. And it's a chance for us both to remember that Jesus was born as God in flesh, but also remember the promise that Jesus said that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so as a Christian, it's one of the ways to think about the Christian life is that we live in between, that we live in between the birth of Christ and waiting for the return of Christ. And it's in that in-between time that we can celebrate Christmas, that Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth, that light has come into the darkness, and as the Gospel of John wonderfully says, and the darkness could not destroy it, could not overcome it. But before we celebrate Christmas, Advent is a time for us to pause and to look with honesty at the darkness. It's a chance for us to acknowledge that there is not only light, but there's also darkness. So Advent is a chance for us in the midst of all the busyness, in the midst of different Christmas parties and different holiday things happening, for us even to, as a Christians to lean into the ache or the deep desire that we have inside of us for things to be made right, or for the incompleteness that we feel to be brought together. We dwell in a world that's racked with conflict and violence, with suffering, and we dwell in a place in which it's a chance for us not only to acknowledge that there is evil and brokenness out there, but it's also within us. And that what we see and wish were different around us, we could say about ourselves as well. And so we gather as a people who confess the light while also acknowledging that we live amidst darkness and that even that darkness is part of us. And I mentioned that, that tension, because it helps us understand John the Baptist. John the Baptist. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear that. One, of the, one person in the Bible, it seems everybody you know, couldn't really get along with. People didn't necessarily enjoy John coming to speak to them. It helps us grasp his role, that John was the voice crying in the wilderness, acknowledging the darkness while giving witness to the light. That was his role, to acknowledge the darkness while giving witness to the light. And in his strangeness and in his otherness, John stands at this place of tension between hope and honesty, where the kingdom of God challenges the way the world works. So this morning, I want us to explore the strangeness and this otherness of John, and specifically look at his location and his appearance, how his location and how his appearance invite us to feel that tension, that we acknowledge the darkness but give witness to the light. So let's look at our passage. This is Matthew 3, verse 1 through 12. You can follow in your Bible or in your order of worship. Let me read to you from God's Word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the shaft will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to be attentive to it, to give our attention, to give our interest as signs of love, as signs of our faith in you. And that as we turn to your word, that by your spirit, you'd help us to know you and to walk in your ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned this morning, as we look at this passage, I want us first to see and kind of feel the strangeness of John through his location. And the second part, we'll look at his strangeness through his appearance, all of which are a challenge to us to hear an honest statement about the darkness but also a witness to the light. So what is John's location? Let's start there. John is east of the Jordan River, an area that's described in our passage as wilderness. A place of wilderness means no human activity, a place that's empty of habitation and empty of agriculture. And that part of that wilderness place is that John is an outsider. He's uncredentialed. He calls the people out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, out of the structures of their society. It's in this outside space that John offers the opening announcement. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Immediately, Matthew connects this statement of John with the prophet Isaiah. Look, this one who is now crying out from the wilderness is the one who was the voice to come, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. A voice in the wilderness. We know what that phrase means, right? We hear it at times. Someone who expresses an idea or an opinion that is not popular. Or the sole person who is expressing a word outside of the establishment. John is that By his location, he's out. And by his words, he is the voice saying, prepare, God is coming to you. And the voice isn't just in any wilderness. It places itself east of the Jordan River. And all those who would see him and hear him in that place would not miss his symbolism. And we need to make sure that we capture the symbolism as well of that location. This is the spot. This is the place where Israel crossed through the River Jordan into the promised land. This is where Israel came home and received the promise that God gave them. Each part of that journey, each part of Israel entering the land of promise, from freedom and slavery in Egypt, escaping through the Red Sea, provision in the wilderness, and crossing through the Jordan into the land flowing with milk and honey. 
Each part was clearly not accomplished by human power. Each part of the journey was set up to point to God's activity, freedom from an oppressive power, victory over Pharaoh and the greatest army the world knew at that time through the Red Sea, water and food in a wasteland of a desert, entrance into a new home. These were all gifts from God. So John's location, he is evoking a new exodus, that this is what God does, not just of the past, but God is active now to free you, to give new provision to you, a new identity, not one who was lost or enslaved, but a child, a son or daughter of God. And he's doing this in the midst of human mistreatment and bondage and sin. And this location where John stands in the wilderness, it stresses that this new exodus, like the old one, is not based in human activity, not based in your promises or your accomplishments. You see, when John says, come out, come out of the city, come out of the temple, come out of the place of human plans and see what God is doing, see that God is coming to his people And he's coming not through the present structures, not even the temple in Jerusalem. He's not coming through the leadership of the day, but he's coming in and through the lowly one of Jesus of Nazareth. An Anglican priest named Tish Harrison Warren writes about the challenge of thinking about our sin in the midst of our culture. She writes, American culture insists that we run at breathless pace from sugar-laced celebration to celebration. Three months of Christmas to the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Fourth of July, and on and on. She continues, we suffer from a collective consumerism mania that demands that we remain optimistic, shiny, and happy. But life isn't a Disney cruise. What a great line. Life isn't a Disney cruise. If you're looking for a bumper sticker, there's, there's one. The tyranny of re- relentless, mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often ironically feeling emptier. Incessant demand for cheer, this collective lie that through enough work and positivity we can perfect our lives and our world. Maybe you can relate to that. Words... And I say that because John, John is saying something similar. He's interrupting. Whether it's today or it's in the past, he stands as one who seeks to interrupt this desire for constant celebration. That if we cover over the brokenness enough that it will go away, that if we only talk about the light, we'll forget about the darkness. Standing in the wilderness apart from the structures of the day, he challenges such lies. He stands as a witness to challenge such lies. From where does this new exodus come? Where might you and I find freedom and rest and know ourselves? Is it in the demand for more and more activity? Is it in the hope of more and more stuff? More and more experiences that might hide or numb the pain or brokenness? We stand as Christians in this time to say that both the darkness and the light are real. 
But we gather here in this place to confess that the light of Christ is more real and more enduring, but that this light does not reside, is not based in us. It doesn't endure because of us. Wherever we find ourselves today, our hope is apart from our human agency, our human powers, but rather our hope is that God is active and that he has not left this world, but he will come again to make things right. And that when Jesus came, he came for the sinful and the broken people. I don't know if you noticed in the passage that Laura read from the, old, from the Romans, how many times it repeated Gentiles, 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 like what's the deal? Because he was trying to say that this promise is not just for those who are near and acceptable, but those who are far off who had no hope. God has come for you. He's offering a welcome and a warning. The welcome being that those who know their need, any kind of need, any kind of brokenness, even if it seems that you're too sinful, God has come for you. And you're invited to come and rest and find home and life in Him, even acknowledging your brokenness. But there's also a warning. This is part of the role that John played, to stand as a warning to warn against those of us who proudly assume upon our place. That we proudly assume upon our place because of our pedigree, because of how people think well of us, because of our heritage or our goodness, because of our religious practice. John says, if that is the case, then you will be sorely mistaken. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, that in John's strangeness and otherness, his location brings out that this call outside of human activity and the strangeness of his appearance. The strangeness of his appearance represents a call for us to examine our certainties and to reorder our lives. As John proclaimed his message, he wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. He ate food of locusts and wild honey. Think for a moment about that. Very little in life is more visible to the human eye than how a person dresses. Clothing and food, they can signal either our sense of identification with each other or it can set us apart from others. And John is all about setting himself apart. Right? He's not inviting anyone else to wear his fashion or his food, eat his food. John's strange clothing and his food were symbolic ways of standing in opposition to the way things are. Standing in opposition to society. I'm not part of that, he's saying. And he's doing this to acknowledge the darkness by giving witness to the light. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. It's arriving. It's coming to you. And to announce this is to say that God is entering into the world. Maybe you've had the experience of being in a space in which you know, it was an old way of doing things and you come in and start to do things in a new way and run into challenges of trying to change how things are done, whether it's in a classroom or it's in a workplace. I can remember when I was young that sometimes my dad would, dad would decide to clean up the house and all of a sudden there'd be things put places that no one had any idea where to find, you know, where this object had now been placed because he didn't put it in the right spot. Maybe you've had experience stepping into a new job where you're supposed to manage an office or take on new responsibilities, but the way things were done in the past is not the way you want to do them any longer. Or maybe you had the experience of being in the kitchen and someone else has an idea of how things should be put away or how things should be done. 
I won't label which one's the kingdom of the world and which one's the kingdom of the God. You can, you can decide that on your own. But I mention that to get this idea that when God comes, when John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying in the person of Jesus, God's kingdom is interrupting and inserting itself in the midst of the kingdom of the world. That the kingdom of the world has a certain culture, a certain way of doing things, but now there's a new way, a new culture, a new order of being that's right in the midst of this. And of course, it's embodied in the person of Jesus. Think about how Jesus went about his life, trusting in the love and goodness of God. Jesus loved others sacrificially. And Jesus' love is not based on one's worth, one's ability to pay him back. And we see that most clearly in the cross. This is the kingdom, the culture of of heaven in the midst of the world. The Heidelberg Catechism gets at this idea of kind of the story of the kingdom of God, how we embrace it. The Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Think for a moment that that story, of that confession, here is a story of grace, of God's faithfulness that moves us to generosity and to trust. How very different is that way of seeing ourselves and our hope from the culture of the world around us, from the kingdom of the world? We could talk about that in many ways, but one way in particular we could say that the story that the world tells you and me is a story of scarcity. We know this, right? They may not use that word, but we know that fear of scarcity, that we're on our own. We need to fend for ourselves. I can't give because I might be left without. I can't trust God in the present because I might not have enough in the future. I can't worry about my neighbor, whether near or far, because there are only so many good spots, good opportunities available. In fear, I need to look out for myself and my children. John's purpose, John's presence, his appearance was for the very purpose of challenging those assumptions, challenging those worlds that form how our world works. He calls us to look into the reality of our hearts and our culture, and that he challenges them. And a great number of people went out to him. Do you see, many people went to hear his words, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is not Christian baptism where we are brought into the life of the church with the image of being cleansed. But this is an act of repentance. And the language that Matthew uses is the, the word choice is for something to be drowned, used for ships that sink in the sea, a great city that is flooded. So we should not miss the violent imagery of what is being written here. The waters of repentance signify death. The old way of life is being drowned. I no longer want to live by the culture of the kingdom of the world. I want to turn away and walk in a different path. And as the people make their way out to John, as they dare look at themselves and consider 
who they are. Matthew says that there were two groups that came that caught John's attention, in particular the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And for these groups, John has only scathing words of warning, you venomous snakes, (laughs) you venomous snakes. We wonder why John was not popular among such groups. Why? Why does John identify these two groups? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they represent the respectable members of society. We might call the Sadducees the powerful. They were the high priestly party that ran the temple and the city. We could call the Pharisees the pure, for they were a religious group that emphasized to great degree that the way to be God's people is that you keep the laws and the traditions perfectly. And therefore you're pure. And John is confronting the strong and the pure because he knows that they are the most likely to miss what he is saying. His strangeness intentionally questions our assumptions and our certainties. And he warns the Pharisees and the Sadducees of judgment, of the winnowing fork and the axe at the root. Because they are the very ones who might assume, I don't need to reorder my life because God and others are pleased with me. This is the warning that John offers to us. These groups represent those who, when asked, what is my hope in life and death? What is my comfort in the face of darkness? That they might be tempted to answer, I will have enough. I'm strong or I'm pure. And the one who is a part in his appearance and his location says, do not presume to say to yourself, we are the children of Abraham. Do not presume to say that you are God's people. For no human ancestry, no allegiance, no ranking or claim, no social identity will matter before the judgment of God. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we are Abraham's children, because God can raise up children from these very stones. There's many interesting stories in the Bible. One of the ones that stands out to me or ones that is memorable is the story of of Joshua and the people of Israel when they do cross to the Jordan at this very place many years before John the Baptist. If you read in the book of Joshua, it says that after the people went through the Jordan River, Joshua had them erect 12 stones as a memorial to the miraculous stopping of the river that they could all cross and make their way into the promised land. He says for each tribe, take up a stone upon your shoulder according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel that they may be a sign among you. And hear this part. Once they put the stones together on the, on the bank of the Jordan, when your children ask you, when your children ask you, what do those stones mean to you? He says, you shall tell them about the waters of the Jordan and how they were cut off by God that we could pass through into the land that he provided for us. Do you hear that? What did those stones mean to you? It is not a witness to my strength or my purity or that I've done what is right or promised to do so. They are a witness to the God who has seen you and acted for you, bringing you out of slavery through the wilderness into his rest and his home and his promise. That is what we are to remember. 
And that is what John the Baptist is pointing at and says that when God works in His Spirit, He can take stones, things that are dead, and make them alive in His grace. Therefore, do not presume upon your strength, do not presume upon your religious activity or your goodness compared to others, but rest in God's action for you. You see, when John appears on the banks of the Jordan, he wants all cover-ups to come to an end. He confronts the respectable, the strong, and the powerful. He came speaking God's judgment on unjust governments, on corrupt law enforcement and courts, the greed of bankers, the selfishness of the rich, the self-righteousness of the religious establishment. And what happens? In the end, John becomes one of the despised and rejected himself. John is executed without a trial in the dark dungeon of a local strongman, thus truly becoming the one who prepares the way for Jesus, for Jesus' death at the hands of the political and religious powers signifies God's judgment on the kingdom of the world, God's judgment on the strong, God's judgment on all who would seek to stand by themselves. John came as a witness to the light who spoke honestly about the darkness. And Advent is a season of uncovering. It's an invitation for you and I to ask again, where is my hope? Where is my comfort in life and death? The gospel comes to expose all other covers, all other hiding places, all substitutes. They are false. All other stories telling you who you are are false. Let go of those and find again who you are in Christ, the one who came to eat with sinners, that we might be called sons and daughters of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. And Lord, I thank you that you are gracious to us that even when you speak harsh words of judgment, you do so inviting us to turn and find forgiveness in you, Lord, that we may give witness and memorial to your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Faithful God, you are at work to restore all of creation in its intended harmony in a world where peace seems to be so far away. Grant us faith in you and perseverance to walk in the paths of peace. Please be seated. But having heard God's word, we're now invited to the table that God sets for his people, where God gives us his good